0: Okay, welcome everyone. Um, uh, Thank you so much for being here on a Friday afternoon. My name is Feminist McCalvey. I'm an Associate Professor in Communication Studies at Concordia University. And I'm really honored today to be able to present, I think, some of, uh, in a very complicated regulatory world, in a very complicated time to understand media, some of the scholars and the minds that are helping me understand and interpret this world. So this panel is an attempt to try to deal with some of the questions that we have around platforms, and I'll say a few words about that. Um, Before I begin, I just want to also begin by acknowledging that uh, that Concordia University is located on the unceded indigenous lands. The Ganawe nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather today. Montreal is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today it is home to a diverse population of indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continuous connection with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationship with indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. And I also want to just thank a few people for making this event possible. First, this is supported by the Center for the Study of Democratic uh, for the Study of Democratic Citizenship, and particularly the Concordia University wing of that, which has graciously given us this space. Uh, this is also part of a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada titled Democracy and Disruption. And this is part of an ongoing year long event trying to deal with the kind of threats to democracy taking place in Canada. And the topics today are a continuation of a workshop earlier last May. And finally, just two other acknowledgements. One to Tom, who's in the back, who's basically helped make this event possible. And I am also, just to say, on parental leave. So I'm very uh, detached from any of this. And I just want to thank Joan for being the initiative for this and actually bringing together these people and being so generous. And so thank you for all the panelists who are here at the Association of Internet Researchers and taking time away from a busy conference to actually share what I think is cutting-edge research in the field of media. And so it's really a tremendous honor to take place. So just to begin, I want to say a few remarks about this kind of issue of platform governance and this kind of what is the fate of platform and try to contextualize it in Canada. I think it's an important reminder to think back not less than a year ago, Veldon Coburn, a National Nabe activist at McGill University was was tempor- his account was temporarily suspended on Twitter. And the question that comes up in this moment is that how are these platforms increasingly being responsible for and regulating some of the conducts of free expression in Canada? And my colleague, Elizabeth Dubois, has called for these platforms to be more accountable, and this is kind of this moment we're in, is that we are very much aware that the social media companies and a variety of platforms have had significant influence in Canada, but we understand less and less of how they're operating and influencing. This is not a problem specific to Canada, it's a global issue, a global regulatory issue. And this is, I think, one of these uh, challenges that we, come on in, uh, have to go for in making sense of. And it's funny to think back that, uh, come on in. There's lots of space up front here. All these free yeah. seats right yeah. yeah, here. Right. <laughs> right. We saved these. Come just. on
1: and just save yeah. these. Right for you guys to stare right at. No, we have. We, we can't do it.
0: There's a specific gap here, Like it's not too awkward. Yeah, it's not too <laughs> too awkward. So I'll say, not less than ten years ago, when the International Communication Association just gathered in Montreal. You know, we were talking about the rise of these new platforms like Facebook and YouTube and wondering at the time whether they, did, they go by the wayside of Friendster and MySpace. And so it's important to think about how much has changed in a short time and really in some ways we're trying to catch up with one of these questions about how these platforms are increasingly occupying the the space between media and technology. And I think this term platform, which we know on the panel, many people have been influential and kind of definitive in how we understand and think about platforms. We also need to kind of understand that there, because of the influence of a few companies, often called FANG or GAFA, we are talking about a kind of new era of global media concentration and the challenges of dealing with a few companies that have increasingly responsibilities in occupying this strange space between media and technology although they're, they're very often firm on the technology side. And this creates a number of regulatory issues because we're now dealing with the challenge of what might be called many-to-many communication. And How do you talk about this distinction between the traditional paradigms of telecommunication and broadcasting? How do you think through what are these information services? And what are their responsibilities? And this is a clear gray area. And that comes at a time, particularly in Canada, of tremendous media uncertainty. Presently, we have reform out, and we're thinking about this, Copyright, telecommunication, broadcasting, privacy, trade agreements, Privacy Act, and there's also the Standing Ethics Committee at Cambridge Analytica and Facebook questioning data protection. These are all part of this moment in Canada right now about how we're gonna move forward and what will be a coherent digital strategy, a data strategy, or a uh, media, you know, uh, uh, kind of a concerted, converged media, uh, media policy strategy. So this is all taking place right now and so this is one of these, you know, I think, tremendous challenges is that where do platforms fit into this changing media regulatory landscape? One of which all sectors are questioning. And so I think this is one of the contributions of this panel is so the first off is that how do we start talking about what are the key sectoral issues that are facing us in terms of platforms? And what has come about is this terminology: fate, fairness. Accountability, transparency, and ethics as a way of kind of guiding the kind of key principles that might be uh, affecting, or you know, or are kind of a way we might be holding these platforms to more regulatory scrutiny. And so the hope of this panel is first to kind of begin by saying what is this question of fate? What is the fate of platforms? Before moving towards trying to understand what are some of these issues as a kind of media policy issue. I think what's really seminal and important is that you know there's often the sense that media isn't being disrupted, but right now I really feel like these questions that we're asking today will be the defining media policy questions and defining issues in communication studies, media studies, and many other fields, you know, for years to come. So I think this is the start and that's why I'm so thankful to have all these people here to you know, data and society, uh, Robert Governor formerly of the Oxford Internet Institute, Charles DeGillespie Microsoft Research. I just want to say that some of these key, you know, they're representative of I think some of the key institutions that have been really trying to address this issue. And actually, I think also engaging in new types of public scholarship that really require changing ways of actually doing research, being participating, and and putting on kind of (coughs) what it means to be public scholarship. And so it's also, I think, really exciting to see uh, these groups be able to come and share with us. So uh, and join me in thanking the panelists for coming. What? Yes. Yeah, so, and just to begin, I was hoping that everybody could begin by picking and hope for the first section is people in the audience can understand what do we mean by fate. So I was wondering if each panelist might be able to pick one of these terms and uh, say a few words about their research and how their research relates to fairness, accountability, transparency, or ethics, and I think Carlton has been chosen to go first
2: as the
1: senior steward here.
2: Uh, oh, Lord. Let me see if I can stew. Um, uh, so thanks, Fen and John, for the invitation. Uh, I think a lot about platforms I have for a while. I think a lot about the word platform. I think a lot about the companies that have inhabited that position. Uh, and I think particularly about content moderation, a piece that uh, Fenn started with, uh, this question about a sort of like growing concern about the power that platforms have to remove um i uh, i guess i would pull out accountability as sort of a starting term from the fate um, repertoire there is a growing discussion about the power of platforms and much of it not all of it but some of it uh, has importantly swirled around the question of, of what platforms get to do in the name of propriety or offense or harm uh, and that includes the ability to remove content remove people suspend users ban users um, lock stuff away behind age barriers, uh, a whole array of things that are um, intervening in deciding sort of what belongs on the platform at all and um, how you get to find it and under what conditions. And it is easy to see this as kind of a if you if you uh, if this isn't your hot topic and you see this in the news, you might think that this has bubbled up since twenty sixteen with election and fake news questions, or maybe 2014 with Gamergate and harassment. Um, And it is one thing that uh, some of us have been telling the platforms is that they've reached a point where this question of accountability has grown in size and scale. So uh, they now play an essential role in the circulation of news. They now play an essential role in the circulation of political discourse. Um, There are enough people from enough places and enough parts of the world um, that their stewardship is Uh, a question. And and when I talk to people the platforms, I like that angle, it lets them think that they've been doing fine for a while, and it's just that the problem got bigger. Um, I think that's kind of garbage, but it's a useful way to start a conversation with someone who you don't want to tell them they've been wrong all along. Um, The question of the ability to remove people and content from platforms has been there from the beginning, and platforms have known it's been there from the beginning. Uh, Or if they started and thought we better just have someone do customer service, Uh, They quickly learned that they were going to be flooded with concerns and complaints. People were going to um, be troubled by what they found on platforms. They were going to um, try to exploit those platforms for their own ends, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for ill. Um, And the question of accountability is one that has grown only in the sense of um, the, the scope of the concern, the breadth to which we're paying attention to it. The way it has entered into not just public debate from particularly uh, upset communities but a broader sense that the public is implicated that lawmakers are considering it uh, that we're raising a new set of questions i would say that part of what platforms did all along and this is a gesture of accountability although it's largely to avoid it um, was to describe themselves as Open and impartial and flat and neutral—a place where we get to come and share our content, our connections, our photos, whatever—and um, that significantly downplayed the role they might play intervening in that. Whether that was moderation, removing the worst of the worst, or deciding what doesn't belong. Whether that's algorithmic curation and recommendation, deciding kind of what pops up first and what pops up next, uh, or even curatorial choices, uh, featured partners, and you know, hot trending video and whole array of, of mechanisms. Um, what we recognize is that platforms have um, uh, presented one theory of accountability. Uh, they presented it in their terms of service or in their description themselves, and I think what we're seeing in the last couple of years is a call coming from the public saying there should be a different contract, a different sense of accountability. It's an ill-formed, articulated, developing notion, but it's an important
0: and just and all I say is just to echo that I think one of the important things to think about is that we're not in the absence of regulation. What we are is in the absence of accountability or at least publicly accountable regulation. Mm-hmm. And you have to and I think Tarleton and Mike and A's work on shock and how you have to think that it's only been largely through scandal and outrage that we've been kind of regulating the space in many ways. And so hopefully what we're beginning is a more fulsome conversation of what's happening then. So with that I'll ask uh, Robert. Sure. Hey yeah, everyone. Um, so
3: I'm a PhD student in a political science department and my kind of traditional interest has been in different forms of corporate power. So to put an example, um, which I like to think about in, in explaining this kind of moment maybe, is drawing parallels to giant corporations which in the 70s and 80s were also you know, being met with calls for accountability. And I think a big difference now is that, sure, while millions of people may have, for example, you know, put uh, Exxon gas in their car, um, Exxon didn't have the same kind of specific relationship with people's everyday lives as now platform companies do. And following 2016, following Cambridge Analytica, Donald Trump, a number of recent events, we're seeing growing calls for accountability um, basically from everywhere. Um, so from regulators around the world, from, from the public. Um, so in my research, recently, in the past six months, I've been really interested in transparency, specifically. Um, because I think it's been one of the forms of accountability that is being kind of extended. So transparency is a form of accountability. Um, so it's really interesting, as companies which have, tradi- have traditionally presented themselves as you know radical, open organizations, they have what um, there's uh, a researcher, Mikkel Flieberbaum, calls a lot of horizontal transparency. For, um, so you can see within the organization. So you know they put their CEO in a fishbowl in the middle of their massive open-plan office. They have meetings on Fridays where any employee can theoretically ask any question to executives. Um, but externally, there's much less transparency to the broader public, and that's slowly starting to change. Um, you know, Carlton's work on content moderation has been incredibly, uh, incredibly important, and We have seen actually a slow reversal of this opacity where they're starting to release information about community standards, so the rules that govern what kind of speech is allowed. We now kind of know a bit more about how that system works. Um, They're starting to do ad transparency for the first time. Um, So just with one insight from this paper, which I've been uh, recently working on, has been looking at how the notion of transparency as platform companies have kind of embodied it uh, has evolved from being predominantly focused about freedom of expression. So platforms, Google for example, first in 2010 started doing these transparency reports and they're all about government takedowns to content requests. So the platform was this kind of intermediary where it's like we are protecting the users from governments. And in 2017, in April, Google for the first time added a section to its transparency report about its own activities with ads. So I think for the first time we're starting to see self-transparency. And that's something that's really important and potentially powerful. Um, I know a lot of people are hoping it's going to be powerful, but there's also a long, critical kind of literature on how transparency isn't a panacea and how it has a lot of limitations in actually being successful um, for accountability, meaningful democratic accountability. So anyway, I think that's um, that's going to be one of the most important, uh,
0: important kind of questions for, for the coming months and years. And uh, yeah, and I think it, 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 this is one I think these key questions that we're facing not only is um, how do we deal with these platforms, but what becomes the specific regulatory tradition to fit them in? You know, this has become corporate governance, and I think this is one of the challenges that we'll discuss is that there are a variety of policy solutions that might be out there, and there's a variety of you know, pros and cons to those, which I think is a, you know, given, I think, some of the uncertainty we're dealing with at this So with that, I'd like to pass it to Joan to introduce the uh, Media Manipulation Team at like that society.
1: Hey everyone, Friday, (laughs) wakey-wakey, There's
0: coffee in the back. There's
1: coffee in the back, a little bit about me, my alma mater, I grew up on the 11th floor in this building. Um, I don't know if I got mature in that growing up phase, but I read a lot of theory, I learned a lot of things, and I'm very appreciative to be able to bring all of my people uh, to this place and um, You know, as I've been saying all week, there are no tolls on memory lane. So I've been bringing them to Lafleur's and getting them used to hot dogs and poutine. Um, So the team, though, at Data & Society, we work um, very, very closely together. And so a lot of our interests overlap, but um, mainly people write their own reports and do their own research. And we have a few uh, alums in the room, Francesca Tripodi, I saw Caroline earlier over here. Um, Ara, who's the initiative manager, Sam, who does the director of communications and creative engagement, um, and so we're going to go down the line, and we're going to go through. Everybody's going to get about three minutes to continue this conversation about fate. But what's interesting about what we study is it's not really a field so much as it's like a social problem that we're both trying to study. There's so many entry points, so much transdisciplinary research that needs to occur, and and then. At the end of the day what you want to do is produce produce a piece of research that is provocative enough that these companies will see the problem a different way and think about acting on it and um, and we've been really uh, busy with a lot of these different research projects so I'm very happy to uh, as people lay out what pieces of the puzzle they've been working on uh, feel free in the Q&A to engage people direct more directly about the reports and you can see there's a, a I'm a promoter, like, I, I like that, so I'm like, yeah, Like, look at these brochures and take a look at all the things that we've been doing, because the other thing that's important to us is our commitment to open scholarship, so we do a lot to make sure this stuff gets into the public domain, um, which is different than tailoring your academic career to be behind a paywall through you know, JSTOR and EBSCO, and so uh, that kind of stuff gets underwritten uh, in the way that we try to think about our research as having public impact. And so, just want to raise the awareness of that and with that I'll hand it over to Becca to talk about her research.
4: Hi everyone I'm Becca I'm a PhD student at Stanford and an affiliated researcher with these fine folks at data and society and for the past year I've been uh, researching one platform in particular and that is YouTube and I've been I I think that my research probably aligns most closely with ethics because I've been looking at this entire alternative media ecosystem where, in particular, young people, by the hundreds of thousands, um, are getting their news and their political information from alternative sources to the mainstream media. Um, And in many cases, what I found is that uh, they are from incredibly reactionary, and at times, even white nationalist or white supremacist sources. Um, so I I've been working on this report that I just released um, this past uh, September, um, looking specifically at uh, influencers and the role of influencers on these platforms. Um, also, a quick shout out to Steph Duguay who from Concordia who uh, was really helpful in her feedback on that paper. So thank you. Um, but uh, the the tricky thing about influencers is that they interact differently than uh, mainstream news outlets. So Rather than um, being susceptible to fact-checking, they often use the norms of vlogging. Um, They create highly intimate uh, relationships with their audience, they broadcast from their bedroom, Um, they tell these really detailed stories about their personal lives and their past, and then they sprinkle in a dose of white nationalist rhetoric. Um, So it's really subtle and insidious, and it's really difficult to fact-check. Um, because they're using the norms of brand influencers rather than of news, and yet the, the information is political. Um, so where that fits in with FATE is, you know, what is the role of YouTube in moderating and incentivizing this behavior? Because um, YouTube has built out a partner program. They are trying to incentivize individuals to build audiences and gain uh, followers so that they can monetize those, and YouTube gets a cut of that as well. Um, so in short, you know, their, their business model, like the core of their business model has this uh, kind of really unfortunate uh, unintended consequence that when you say that anyone can have a voice, um, some of the people end up being people uh, with really harmful racist and sexist views. Um, so yeah, I think that my questions center around, um, you know, how can YouTube start to address the ethics of its business model by taking into account influence.
5: Um, My name is Kinjal Dave. I'm a research analyst at Data and Society. One of the long-term projects that I've been working on is supporting Joan Donovan and Dana Boyd on their book project uh, surrounding strategic amplification. And I've looked at historical precedents for the relationship between the white press and white supremacy. So in, in looking at archival material from the University of Mississippi and the Library of Congress, um, I'm looking at historical parallels for what we're experiencing today. One of the ways that I think it intersects with fate um, is the idea of fairness, and the civil rights audit that Airbnb underwent arose from an experience of users on this platform experiencing interpersonal discrimination, and and that was a harm that was distributed by the platform. And so the civil rights audit that that Airbnb underwent was largely seen as a success story, and then they they have all these proactive measures, they built goodwill with California housing authorities and and other um, uh, parties that were trying to hold them accountable. Um, And in May of 2018, over 20 civil rights organizations, interfaith organizations and advocacy groups called for Facebook to undergo a civil rights audit as well, um, mirroring the process that happened on Airbnb. And thinking about Safiya Noble's concept of technological redlining, uh, the product that, that Facebook delivers is not um, as clear as, as, um, as Airbnbs, right? And so we, we can look in the United States, a civil rights history that has fought for equal access to hotels, lunch counters, other kind of consumer services, um, but that is arising from experiencing the harm of, of not being treated fairly on the platform, of not having the same experience on the platform as, as other people. Um, and so, I think there are a lot of challenges to copy and pasting this this approach and saying that because it worked for Airbnb, it'll work for Facebook, um, if only because speech is really critical to exercising any of your, your civil rights to begin with. Um, so, and it also is a way of obscuring, one way we can think about fairness on a platform is the different ways individuals experience uh, the platform and also the harms that they would incur. Um, so that's just a, a small introduction to the ways that we can sort of look at the history of fighting for advocacy in the United States and what fairness looks like, as well as the limitations that the civil rights frame brings as well, right? Really couched in neoliberal fairness. And, and if you don't have, um, you know, if you don't have the purchasing power to really exercise that kind of, um, uh, accountability or or voice in that way then then you might not be able to influence it um so yeah thanks
6: so i'm next i'm brit paris i'm a researcher with the media manipulation initiative i have my phd from ucla in information studies um and i'm going to talk a little bit about the a accountability um, and so I'm going to talk about it through the lens of some research I'm starting here with the Media Manipulation Initiative on deepfakes. Um, so the deepfake phenomenon started in 2017 or gained public attention in 2017, um, as many of you probably know, as porn videos appeared on Reddit with um, the faces of you know female celebrities transmogrified onto porn actors' bodies. And since then, there have been a number of other instances, uh, sort of popular instances of these deep fake videos. Um, and these instances of these videos, they're manufactured through increasingly sophisticated artificial intelligence. And they depict things, uh, often people doing things that they never did, or things that never happened, etc. cetera. Um, and while a lot of these that have come to our attention recently don't yet sort of necessarily warrant complete censorship, they do carry implications, uh, sort of important implications for Um, consent and uh, for platform content moderation in particular. Um, So in terms of platform accountability, at present there exist a number of privately funded uh, projects that really attempt to mitigate these technical problems of speed and scale with the dissemination of these videos. from you know there are examples of you know, using blockchain for image verification to developing artificial intelligence systems to detect these deep fakes. There are a few instances of guidelines for viewers and for journalists to follow the metadata to do reverse image search uh, to identify deep fakes that have been published uh, by various journalistic organizations. And while all of these are useful in particular scenarios, as with other instances of falsified news or information or content, we need to really keep sight of, I think, um, interpretive flexibility, that there are many sort of socio-technical problems that are at play here. Um, and, and by virtue of treating the technical symptoms uh, with these piecemeal solutions that I've just mentioned, uh, these solutions seem to detract from treating the larger, sort of more complex social, political, and economic sort of, these sort of structural problems. <coughs> problems. Problem, um, so it's clear that platforms should meaningfully hire and train uh, human moderators to heed these sort of complex and um, these complex so- social and cultural contexts for addressing these fake audiovisual materials. Um, you know, I'm sort of playing with some ideas right now of um, you know developing a set of conceptual guidelines to think about the intent behind these, the interpretation, uh, varying you know. Uh, Conceptualizations of impact of these videos. Um, and also, you know, at present, Facebook and other organizations are developing AI to combat AI, which seems also like, you know, a, a sort of unwieldy arms race. You know, AI is notoriously bad at detecting these sort of uh, nuanced social and cultural contexts. For one, you know, there are a lot of different reasons. And in addition, we can't really unmake the technologies that uh, have been used to make these sort of wide. Um, these audiovisual fakes widely available. So putting the onus, I think, also on individual users to detect and be punished for making these fakes or distributing these fakes seems also a poor solution. So we're sort of left at an impasse, and I don't really have a great solution here. We're left, you know, with this impasse. where the only ones who are holding platforms accountable for, uh, you know, spreading this falsified audiovisual footage um, and news. Um, are the platforms themselves, and these platforms are still, you know, like we were talking about reluctant to acknowledge that they fill the same role as media companies, as uh, you know, disseminating important political discourse, and instead they call themselves, you know, sort of social infrastructures, uh, as Mark Zuckerberg did uh, last winter, I believe, in order to sort of elide government and civil society regulation. So at present, it seems that what works best is pushing for platform accountability with the levers that we have available to us. um, And you know, it seems like offering Technologies, sort of different conceptual tools to govern themselves um, is one lever that we have, as well as, you know, sort of journalism and research methodologies that expose, you know, sort of things that are hidden otherwise.
3: Yeah, perfect. Uh, We'll talk about methodologies. Uh, I'm Brian, I'm a researcher at Data
7: and Society. My name is Leon, I'm a data scientist at NYU's politics department, and I'm also a research affiliate at the TMU.
3: So I think the best way to frame this is we try to provide small moments of transparency into processes and cultures where transparency is very difficult. Um, so we help other researchers complete uh, their projects by providing qualitative and quantitative evidence. Um, we employ uh, discourse analysis, visual cultural analysis, machine learning, and archiving. Um, I have a background in anthropology, so I stick to most of the analysis as far as the dispersive of individual culture. Um, and Leon takes care of the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, we try to find, uh,
7: provide detailed insights into how niche communities might have a disproportionate impact on mainstream uh, media and mainstream culture. Uh, to do that, we use a combination of like, hand-picked case studies that Brian finds and uh,
2: uh, platform-level uh, API data that I scrape and aggregate. So some of the factors we look for are changes in movements in ideology, social organization
3: structures, uh, Cultural formations used to recruit and spread messages, um, and also tactics used to disproportionately affect other systems like Facebook and Twitter.
7: And I think that we have a really special relationship between um, the qualitative and quantitative work and things that we do. And um, it'd be really interesting. Uh, Francesca uh, today mentioned that you know, more so- sociologists need to be into platforms, right? I think that we're kind of trying to find a really great working relationship between. Um, how you can use data and how you can use case studies to inform uh, how you research and how you develop things. Like We're considering building out web apps to help other people uh, do similar research. Um, and so this is an example of how uh, this kind of cultural work and social science like fuels development of apps.
1: You don't want to tell one juicy case study? Nope. Maybe one? No. <laughs> OK. They are always like on OPSEC control here. Uh, I appreciate the operational security, but um, the fringe communities that they study are often uh, the ones we know the, probably the least about because they're so hard to research, they're so hard to archive. You find them in these message boards. Um, I think the most popular ones of those are uh, through like 4chan and 8chan, but there is a whole bunch of other places in which you can look to find um, these, what might be subcultures in some way of thinking about it. They have their own language, they have their own set of politics, they have their own distribution systems, and they have their own favorite places to congregate and uh, share their messages. and so one of the things that i've been looking at very closely with um brian and uh leon as well as uh, becca's help was looking at the development of alt tech uh so stepping aside out of platform companies that we come to know and think of as like the big ones like twitter facebook uh, youtube and thinking about something like gab ai that got a really big boost after charlottesville because it was going to be the free speech space where you could say anything online, and it is rife with white nationalism, pornography, and snuff films. And that's what you get when you don't moderate content, when you don't clean up for things, when you don't um, employ uh, responsible community management. Uh, And I think we focus a lot on the suspension, ban, censorship model to say, uh, we blanket over the things that people are actually doing on these platforms. And I think Gab is an alternative technology that develops out of this, that tries to aggregate all the features, right? You can make donations, you can live stream, people can comment, you can share articles. It's like, we're gonna be everything to everyone. But what's interesting, and what's critical to think about is what Gab has to plug into as an internet infrastructure. And what's happening on Gab is an artifact of what, um, it's like, a, a, almost like a relic of the internet related to decentralization. So they have to have a domain servicer, they can't just up and pay for that on their own, they're not Google, they have to have servers and the companies that uh, mm-hmm. host their content are saying no. And you're like, WTF, Microsoft Azure, why do you get to say what I can do on my website? And so we're seeing content moderation move down the stack. And I think that one of the things our team has tried to do over the last year is to pay a lot of attention to where governance shifts to, and then how in that shift we too as information activists, in some sense of the word, or as People that are here for the public good and like to have uh, a society in which we feel that we are um, having fair relationships, and we have to pay attention to those shifting spaces of governance, right? We can't go to the governments writ large and hope that they regulate, but we also can't go um, full scale only into Google. And Twitter and Facebook and say, okay, these spaces we will moderate, because ultimately this stuff is going to shift and shift and shift until it gets down, way down into probably the AI, and we're not going to be able to know what's what was there, what what is being hidden, um, because there's going to be ways in which that kind of those systems are going to show up in server companies, um, and so in terms of the kinds of research that I do. Um, I would say that I'm concerned literally with the fate of the internet, right? The whole thing, because it's an incredibly amazing collaborative project that we have all built together and we can't let companies determine how and when we're gonna get service and we can't let them determine how and when we're gonna get into government. And so I'll just close by saying that I think we need to develop an ethical model of action for people who build these systems. Mm -hmm. And we have to uh, equip them with the language and the frames and the ideas and the vision of a truly coordinated open internet that has some kind of sets of guidelines and rules where yes, of course, we don't want white nationalist recruitment and we should be able to mark that and call that out But at the same time, as we start to see power consolidate in spaces that are very, very hard to see, like in the cloud, um, researchers, uh, I think we are sort of the great last hope in some respects for understanding what the future and the fate of these uh, internet companies is going to look like.
0: Just to summarize a few points, there's a lot happening there in these few comments, but I think, you know, one thing to think about is that how you can think of this term fate is trying to walk through the kind of challenges that we're dealing with. And in one sense, you know, what has become readily apparent when we talk about fairness is that the status quo is deeply inequitable, but very often that's put forward as the kind of default template of designing these technologies. And so, how do we become more mindful and what are the systems and technologies that we can use to actually point—that actually build in this kind of research ethics, or build in a sense of fairness in how these technologies are being designed—because I think I'm just going to do second here. Because I do think one challenge here is that um, um, without that, you know, we uh, we run a real risk of um, of losing sight of that.
3: Robert, do you have a quick comment? Yeah, I just want to say I mean I think it's important to note that there is a lot of different like understandings and competing understandings of fairness, mm-hmm. and I think arguably like platform companies like Facebook think they are being fair, but it's a very, like, computer science, narrow definition of fairness, and it's one about, like, different populations being treated the exact same way, and it's not one that's about systemic inequalities and injustice over time, and I think that's the key in the long-term faith vision
2: that John has just
0: yeah, I think a lot of people talk about like a, a lot of the other way this is being brought up is in terms of bias. And there's often ways of talking, you know, specifically with statistical bias without talking with systemic bias. And so, I mean, fairness is one of these other ways of capturing it. And this kind of, I think, builds into these questions of accountability, where you're now seeing that these kind of issues of fairness are something that uh, really haven't been addressed, but yet they're already in place as part of the everyday practice of many of these different companies. And you can think, to kind of echo one of the, these questions, as we talk about accountability, we're talking about this in many different layers. And one of the ways that we're dealing with this kind of internet governance is at what layer do we want to have this regulation taking place? And so I think one of the questions that's at work is at least in Canada, we have principles of common carriage and the idea that we can have information, our know, infrastructure that enables people to be online, emphasizing on kind of overcoming digital divides. And the concern is that whether or you know, how much that becomes kind of responsible for also moderating policing content. And so this is one of the things that was proposed in the Fair Play Canada, which is the idea of building in a piracy block list in Canada. And I think it's important to think about the different ways that there's been solutions for copyright and what layer, you know, do you want this in actually the technical infrastructure or do you want this as a more transparent process closer to the users? And this is why there's this bandwidth of where accountability should take place. And this has also come through in these questions of transparency when you're looking at um, how we might be able to see what's taking place how we can think about how platforms are disclosing or not disclosing. I think a lot of these kind of limitations what we see. And then finally, this question of where we see ethics coming from. And this is not simply, I think, a narrow vision of ethics and practice, but you also see, I think, over you know, with Google's uh, decision to exit for Project Maven, and also this decision recently not to bid in a, a, um, a US government contract. There's also growing consciousness within the tech sector about how they are can it be influential in the technology of the design. So I think it's a really critical point. Um, one thing that I think is important to think about is, um, you know, what are the harms here? And I think there's this question of what, what is, um, uh, you know, it's described less as a discipline than as a social issue. And I just wanted to know, because in my own research, one of the things that, you know, became really apparent um, is in talking in Canada and talking about kind of political communication in Canada, uh, unduly the burden and the consequences of these technologies are directed towards women think about Kathleen Wynne or Rachel Notley, both of those kind of endure kind of constant uh, toxic comments online. And so you think about already the longstanding issues we've had about women participating in politics and how this kind of online uh, environment only exacerbates those issues. And so I'm wondering if anyone in the panel wants to kind of share some of the, any story or any, any way they've kind of understood the kind of harm or kind of the risks that work here, you know, if anybody has a story that kind of helps guide or motivate their own research.
4: So, sorry. You mean the risks of the risks at stake? What's the With, issue? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, why? I mean, why does this matter? I mean, if you can make it, yeah, go. I was just so. I'll I'll say one quick th- thing on it, um, and I'll throw out a question to the audience, which is, since we're in Canada, I'll ask. Um, it who has heard of Faith Goldie? Mm-hmm. Yes. So she's Faith Faith Goldie. Mm -hmm. So she's a um, far-right, neo-Nazi YouTube influencer who now is running for mayor of Toronto and has ended up, through her media manipulation, um, gaining a ton of press coverage for herself. so obviously, it's still a low stakes situation, or not low stakes. It's a low chance that she would be elected to be mayor, but I don't think it's safe to to rule out situations anymore after kind of like everyone being so shocked with Trump, and um, even in the meantime, her appearance in the mainstream media acts as um, intimidation to marginalized groups, um, and the possibility of her being in power acts as intimidation to marginalized groups. Um, so I think that like. there are are very real political consequences to some of the design decisions and some of the ethical uh, accountability or lack thereof um, and and business models of these platforms. and That was just the first one that came to mind. Well,
1: I also think about um, harassment at scale. So one of the things that's been interesting is to hear politicians complain about platforms. So the Bernie Sanders people are like, Ah, like we had all these people sign up for our Facebook page and and now we have to pay to get in touch with them And we don't want to do that we don't want to we don't want to have we don't want to have to pay to get in touch with our people and this is a consequence of Facebook's introduction of pages where it was going to try to replace the internet it was like NGOs brands all come to us movements do all your stuff on a page and you'll be able to get in contact with all of your constituents everyone who likes you is going to see your messages And then when they had to monetize something on Facebook, they monetized reach. And so it totally shifted the way that nonprofits were operating. Like nonprofits, for instance, that um, my partner was working at, they shifted their entire promotional strategy and distribution of their um, very important research on childhood trauma to Facebook because that's where the audience was. And then it became a budgetary issue to be like, well, if we have to reach all these people in the midst of some tragedy, right, where people need resources, uh, you gotta pay extra for that. And Bernie Sanders too was mad he had to pay extra. Then Maxine Waters is like, I can't get in touch with my constituents because I have more trolls than people that are interested in me as a candidate. So anytime Maxine Waters tweets, there's just harassment at scale that outweighs her importance and so I think we have to think about this in terms of when people are getting into politics or trying to shift issues and think about well how do we then communicate with one another so that the person that is able to speak and is in a, and is allowed to speak is is uh, not harassed out of you know any public speaking and we've seen this of course like endlessly through marginalization of activists especially on black Twitter and but the the, if you look at the harassment threads and you see all of it When you try to report it, it is such a nightmare It is such a nightmare to report on when you're being harassed online because it's like you have all these evidence all this receipts They still don't believe you I think a lot
5: about um, in an international perspective the um, Right, race riots that are um, you know happening in India or um, the election situation in Myanmar. I think the, I think, broadly speaking, it's a question of um, you know the most authoritarian governments being able to. Uh, roundup activists or dissidents who are expressing their political opinion. These, these platforms are really great ways to deliver people's mm. opinion and dissent, um, therefore making people uh, targets to um, in, in environments where civil, civil liberties aren't protected. Um, and, and I do think that the far right in a lot of countries are being able to mobilize these um, similar patterns in wherever they are. And so as we think about whatever issue we face in a one particular nation's context, we, we should also be understanding that it's happening in a parallel situation in other countries.
2: Yeah, I, it was definitely striking when I was doing the research for the book how often the questions that seemed to really press on content moderation had to do with gender relations with misogyny. Um, as I was figuring out, I was trying to figure out a chapter to do that was sort of a case study of how people live with moderation. Harassment seemed like a really you know like powerful case to do. Um, there's a great case that I did not end up writing about that Isabel Girard, who's in here, uh, wrote about really effectively about the concerns about self-harm and, and pro anorexia and that while it affects all sorts of people, was very distinctly about sort of women and women's images. And what I ended up writing about with the help of Caroline Jack was uh, a debate that's been going on for 12 years about uh, women taking photos of breastfeeding, right? And this was like one of the first big challenges that Facebook faced, where it was clear that some people were disputing. The, the line that they were drawing and how they were drawing it, so and, and it was it was hard not to look at the, that and many other cases and go wow there's a lot of you know this is really a gender issue. That said, I would say that from a communication perspective, I think one of the things that we always have to remember, and it's not just about platforms, it's about every information system we've ever encountered, is that when we engage in information and take part in information systems, we by definition make ourselves vulnerable. Right? It's, this, it's this very moment. It's even like, if I want to know what's happening in a part of the world I can't go observe, I have to count on someone else, someone to tell the story, someone to deliver it, someone to narrate it, someone to explain it. I can't you know, w- fundamentally work against those claims of knowledge. Right? I don't have a standing to do it. So we're always vulnerable to the deliverers of information and then vulnerable to those who uh, are providing information who are trying to take advantage of that situation. Um, and that's just true. That's like this weird, deep, fundamental, problem or reality about communication um, it does not surprise me that then the places where we would um, develop and struggle with tensions about that vulnerability are about some of the most deep pressing social issues of our day right which include gender dynamics misogyny sexual violence as well as terrorism as well as um, you know ethnic and racial tensions as well as you know that that list goes on but it doesn't it's on endless it's about The very things that are pressing and at issue today or in the last decade or in the last several decades this being one of
0: them yeah i think you know it it, it, once they speak so i think the, the the ways that this is an issue uh when we talk about platform governance really in many ways it's a proxy for these kind of enduring media questions we've had for years and it's one way i think to say is that Uh, there's ways that they're exacerbating this and changing it and making it more, you know, in ways the media tended to is problematic, but also it's not, I think, often to legitimate what were historic problems in the prior, you know, within traditional broadcasting system for the ways that there's all kinds of exclusion taking place in the prior media. So, it's important to attend to, I think, the ways that um, we, we think about these kind of enduring debates uh, and in part, I think this has to do with the the work that is done. It's simply not. It's not only do we have kind of legal frameworks that uh, might be um, ineffective at dealing, say, with harassment at scale. Um, we also have changing norms, and this is this question where you think about some of the work that's done about these discussions is building those kind of the, those, those uh, questions about what um, you know what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, and I think. In, in part of you know bigger movements, this is with me too, you know, larger cultural shifts that need to be taking place. You can think about how this is, you know, these discussions about platforms are part of these kind of larger conversations and integral to them. Um, you know, and I think one of the questions that comes up in some ways is, you know, w- what is the boundaries too? And that uh, when we think what's taking place in Myanmar, for example, I mean, you know, I think the, the scary thing when you look at, say, the Facebook content moderation guidelines, is there's the premise that this is a universal solution. And I think there is this, this question that we're butting heads against, which is what is the kind of limits or where do where we talk with these kind of boundaries where things make sense? And I think that that in this increasing global world, you know, what might be the solution for Canada is different necessarily than what might be the solution for Myanmar. Yet, you know, you can't also fall in these kind of nationalistic traps and it's, I think, uh, something that's very much in flux. Um, just to continue the conversation, then, um, you know, one of these questions that's come up: we've seen AI, we've seen content moderation. Um, you've also got calls for transparency. I'm wondering, just that, to introduce the audience, if you can also think of solutions that you've seen, and I don't mean this in a systematic way, but what are what are some of the kind of pressing things you think can be done soon, now, or seem really tangible and just haven't been kicked up and you want to kind of boost? Because I think the other thing on the table is there's so much that has to be done, it's hard to also kind of make sense of you know, what is a kind of robust solution. I think the first way to start is just thinking about some of the options for performance.
2: I've got one, I've got a bunch. <laughs> uh, most of them are politically untenable and naive and outrageous, but I write about them anyway because they make me happy. Uh, and then plenty of them are obvious and could be done and wouldn't do much. So let me do one that's kind of halfway between. Um, So, in the US, Facebook and others have been under pressure about political advertising. uh, And there was a bill that was introduced. I don't think it's been passed yet, but a bill was introduced to sort of uh, compel platforms to meet the same requirements that television and the like do about political advertising, which is about admitting sort of like who it comes from. This is why the ads sort of have to indicate who's, you know, who. Um, paid for and and sponsored the ad. And it's uh, Facebook and I think Google sort of like more or less embraced the logic of it recently in anticipation of this law passing and have started to set up mechanisms where uh, you can click on a political ad and find out who paid for it. and And then immediately there are all sorts of problems about like what got classified as a political ad, <laughs> and what was just political in coverage but not an ad, and then it got marked as like, you have to go through the, all these hurdles because you're a political ad, and they weren't, all sorts of things that were missed. Um,
1: dark money.
2: Yeah, right, so it's a, it, it's, a, it's a hilariously specific thing to ask Facebook to do um, to handle a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that struck me, and this is where it becomes politically untenable, if you know anything about what's going on in the US right now. Um, or, or maybe it's not even the political part, it's maybe the platforms wouldn't want to do it. Um, the way that rule was imagined said <coughs> political ads should be labeled and you know made transparent. And it's because it was leaning on a law that exists already that was specific to political campaign ads on television. Um, that requires the platform to make a, yet another distinction decide what counts as political, which then, not surprisingly, we could say, wow, I don't agree with your assessment, and that assessment, when done badly, is going to be very consequential for those who get caught up in it and shouldn't be, and also it matters for those who slip by and probably should have been. Um, I would love to see the platforms be asked to be um, accountable and transparent around things they actually could tell us. right? So the one I would say is, why don't you have to be transparent about advertising? right? If it was paid for, then you indicate that. Now, there's all sorts of problems about like, knowing who really provided the money. Like That doesn't solve that problem. Um, it encompasses the political campaigns, because that would be paid for advertising as well. Um, but they know if something was paid for, and that's a piece of data that we don't get to enjoy as users, um, doesn't require a distinction about deciding which things should be labeled, and is precisely based on information they have, because it is their very process. Now that requires a kind of idea about advertising that, in the US at least, we have not embraced, um, where advertising should have to sort of fess up as to who advertised. This wasn't as big a problem for mass media because the people who could afford to make television were relatively plain about uh, what they were doing. The Nike swoosh that they know the ad told you a lot about who paid for it, right? And political campaigning was the one that might want to be most you know, obsequious or opaque about what they're doing, and so there was a call to have more transparency because the commercial advertising was transparent enough. But that's not the case here, right? And when you begin to think yourself, well, you know, individual users can pay to boost, a, a, you know, a post, does that count? Sure, why not? Why not, uh, you know, be asked to acknowledge that something's paid for? That's a very different question about what kind of information the platforms actually do have. It does not require a team to make some weird distinction and then we have to wonder like why their values and not someone else's. Are they making that distinction well? Is it self serving or inconsistent? Um, but would provide a lot of information to users about what they're seeing. But it would require a very different thinking about um, the platform saying to their advertisers, we are going to impose this mechanism, and the advertisers may not like that. I could see why it wouldn't happen.
0: And just all I'll say is that. But- things is that in Canada we have this discussion going on right now because you know an Aggregate IQ in Victoria BC was kind of integral allegedly to two different Brexit campaigns and it's very clear that there's some ways that the global nature of communication is enabling ways of securing campaign financing rules, which fit into advertising and mm-hmm. I think Joe wants to speak and I will instead I will plug for you but I know that Data Society is also coming up with a new piece on ad tech coming out at some point. Wednesday. But so. Just uh, got
1: the proofs.
0: So.
3: So
1: really nailed it.
0: Hot still on the pressing. Yeah. Prog- promotional culture.
3: Uh, yeah.
1: But I appreciate that. No, we, well, we realized, you know, last, uh, it was like two days after Thanksgiving, I took a, I called up Tony Mabler and Matt Crane, and was just like, we got to do something about this. You guys know about advertising online, and and we need to do a report that talks about not just Facebook, but the entire infrastructure of the internet is advertising infrastructure. And so Sophia Noble had this great quote in Algorithms of Propression that, really made me like, it just was so crystallizing. It was like they didn't build information algorithms, they built advertising algorithms. And it's, it's just very clear then when you look at the system like that, that you realize all these moments that they failed to legislate. And I think that that permissiveness, that is, is a form of what we would call decontrol. It's not deregulation, it's a society sort of normy, it's like it's setting a set of norms around, we're gonna let this permit for as long as we possibly can. And so they don't build in legislation that says, we're going to let them have no rules about advertising. They just don't enforce anything. And there's no real social movement that's going to step in and say, wait a second, guys. This is totally out of control. And what's been great about working with Carol and Jack and thinking historically, there are moments where people were like, yeah, this advertising is bad, (laughs) right? Um, and so, yeah, so we've been, we've been working on that for nearly a year, and I think it's really smart to think about the advertising. And Sam yesterday was talking about, we'll start with banning the Nazis, because like, that would just make everybody's life a little bit easier. And I think the coordination the and the reputational costs of keeping Nazis on your platform is very high at this point. And when I say Nazis, I mean like white supremacists who are ardent about spreading that stuff. And then the other thing I'll point to that um, doesn't really get talked about, but when I think about my academic training and, and thinking about information and infrastructures, we've built an internet for coordination that, that like, requires a lot of interoperability. And where we see the most fuckery with these media manipulators is at the seams of the platforms. They coordinate over here to come onto Facebook or to come into your Twitter stream and bombard you with shit. And so we've been thinking about, like Leon's been building a, a tool for us to see across uh, these platforms so that we can think about, well, what does adversarial methods look like? What does adversarial interoperability look like? So that we can see when they're coordinating on one channel, how it's gonna show up on the other ch- on, on the other platform, right? So if they're coordinating in a Discord chat, how do you mark that? How do you archive that? How do you get ahead of that? And then say, here's all the things that they said they were going to do. And then here's how they, you know, tormented this teenager on in their you know, YouTube video and in their comments. And so I think that it's really important for us to leverage the features that are built into the internet, be, turn them into methods, and then use them as ways to push these platform companies towards accountability. And I don't know if Leon wants to say a little bit about the, the stuff that you're building now, but it's really interesting to think about reverse image search and how useful that could be in other spaces.
7: Sure, like what Jen was saying, you know, we we gotta approach this as a system science. So like, my training is actually climate science, and Brian came up with this really great analogy. It's like we don't know what the weather is like, you know, like there's no way to like see what's going on on like a sunny day where everything looks normal on certain platforms or certain communities. We're trying to find ways to visualize and track what communities look like both on sunny days and on adverse weather conditions, which might be uh, a hoax or uh, a campaign of harassment. And uh, I'm convinced uh, and Brian's convinced from looking himself that we can actually discern patterns about uh, when hoaxes occur. Like the most obvious one is every time there's a mass shooting, There are uh, Sam Hyde, uh, the comedian Sam Hyde, shows up everywhere, right? Like that is a known pattern that we see in a hoax to say that this is the shooter and you know, maybe he's Antifa or something, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we're trying to build tools to like, find these patterns first for us to see and then potentially we could teach a machine to see. But no matter what, you know, it's really important that as researchers we have
0: insight into how things spread and how things are happening on a systematic scale. Yeah, just and I think one thing that's interesting is that it also speaks, I think, one of the challenges when we talk about at least the the academic research platforms. Not only are they incredibly difficult individually to get access to, but, you know, one of I think the limitations of the field for a long time has been actually how you talk about like coordination between platforms. And I think that's one of the kind of limitations a lot of communication research uh, in particular, is that like that question of inter-platform and the ways you think of campaigns across platforms is something that is very real, but very not captured in much of the kind of conventional <laughs> social media analytics that we have come to rely on. Um, Robert, I was just also going to say that one of this dimensions is also this national international dimension. And I was, was hoping you could speak to that. Yeah,
3: well, I was just uh, gonna say something about like the Myanmar case, which I think is just so insanely complicated and interesting, right? So obviously, at the kind of surface level, there's the infrastructural problems where which are like comical and tragic, um, where like Facebook has like six people who can speak Burmese, and um, Burmese isn't in Unicode, so they can't use algorithmic classifiers to pick up hate speech. Um, they actually can't machine detect it right now for various reasons. So here, anyway, there's that there's that side of things. But then there's just like the incredible governance, international governance problem, where. Facebook complies with local laws, but what happens when it's actually a government that is engaging in the genocidal speech against its own citizenry? Um, So they've been put in this really interesting middle ground, kind of caught between, um, between governments and also I guess the international human rights community in a way, and there's no codified mechanisms for accountability or really their responsibility, and it's happening on this ad hoc basis. Right now, the main mechanism, I guess, is like public outrage, please do something.
0: Um,
3: So something that I've been thinking about a lot um, has been basically more institutional mechanisms that could be global, that could maybe promote basically more engagement and more accountability uh, at a broader level, you know, internationally. So there's something called the Global Network Initiative, which was set up about a decade ago when the primary concern for people like us was censorship and free speech. And it has this whole institutional mechanism. A bunch of platforms are part of this. Um, they have auditing that happens as part of this every two years. Uh, they have to release reports. Um, there's this whole governance structure. But that's primarily about content takedowns. And that's actually why a lot of these companies issue transparency reports. So I think my crazy idea would be to do like a new generation accountability body, a new generation GNI, which brings in civil society, brings in academics, brings in a lot of stakeholders kind of around. And looks more systemically at some of those things.
5: And I think we can ask like bigger questions, right? Like why should you be able to operate in Myanmar if you only have four people who can speak Burmese, right? Why are you why should you be able to reap the profits of that market if you can't responsibly mm-hmm. uphold what you say your service is doing?
3: And part of the problem is that you yourself, you know, say that it's not a huge priority for you because it's a tiny market and that's why you don't have the infrastructure there.
5: And we work with civil society whose experience has been when authoritarian governments work with social media to leverage their messages, that does lend itself to a populist message, getting more traction. It does lead itself to, you know, viral WhatsApp messages that are are spreading disinformation. And there are direct connections, like that. Those heads of states can communicate with platforms in a way that the average person can't. Right? That's another fairness question. And and the facilitation is kind of clear that the platforms are facilitating the actual outcomes of these elections through that direct content.
2: If a company had had said, we're going to set up a printing press. In Myanmar, we don't speak the language. We're going to leave the door open, and anyone can do whatever they want to, including the government and whoever else. Um, and we're going to make sure the resources are there for paper and ink, and have it go. And I think that would be fine. You know, we would have been like, "That's a really, really terrible idea, right? That's pretty clear what the what the risks are." Um, and yet, and and we'll take some money off them. Like that's
0: a pretty <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, just to say I mean people haven't seen it. The, John Oliver has a recent episode talking through Facebook and Myanmar, which I actually really appreciate because it kind of connects this dot between why Facebook and Myanmar, and it's because of the free basics are the mm-hmm. internet.org program, the, which I think draws a really important parallel is that you know there there is this is not just like, oh, we're a global platform and we're just gonna let everybody. everybody you know, we just anybody can connect. It's like they're very actively engaged and really willing to operate. In modes of international development, without any of the same infrastructure, or mechanism, or actually, like, uh, kind of the resources to do that. Um, just, just in case people are not aware, yeah. Free Basics is this program
3: where Facebook basically offered zero-rated, so of free services um, with certain telecom providers in uh, the global south. So part of the amazing, you know, the craziness of this, it's like as if they had set up free printing presses. Right, because they're so so. Right. That's part of what has made you know Facebook used by like eighty
0: percent of internet users there. I want to point out, I think a contribution kind of but all say is that with free basics, um, they were curating what was free, right? So they're very actively saying, you know, it's not it's not that it was a free for all. It was very curated, and yet you know, so there's in one sense that there's a lot of this kind of attention. But you know, when it comes to so these these gaps in governance, So I just want to say that we'll do one more little bit of discussion here, and then we're going to open up for questions. So get your thinking caps on for questions. Uh, because I want to make sure we have lots of time for that. And with that, Becca, do you want to speak? Yeah,
4: I was just going to say, I mean, in terms of broader suggestions, um, this is not to sound like a broken record, but I think um, in in addition to thinking about content, my main suggestion or proposal is that uh, platforms need to take influence into account, Um, because fundamentally when someone is tweeting a conspiracy theory who has five followers, it's completely different than when Alex Jones is tweeting it to his millions of followers. Um, And so I don't have one specific suggestion, but I have a a specific point of intervention that I think um, could be useful, which is YouTube has a um, YouTube partner program for their content creators that have gained enough followers and whose content has been watched enough um, and at that moment in time, they review that content creator's content um, to make sure that it's not violating copyright or uh, any other legal issues. Um, at that point in time, I think because they already clearly have the resources to be doing this scalable work, um, that could be a moment in time where they they do a more thorough content review. And also, just to open up the question, I don't know how I feel about this, but like, should there be a higher like standards of content moderation for influential users than kind of your average people with, you know, fewer followers.
0: Well, I think one thing to, to make a point, it's really interesting to me, and you know, this echoes some of Tarleton's early work, which Julian really influential on me, was on copyright. And it's really strange, that this moment we have now where we, you know, we've talked for years about the threat of piracy, and we think about the tremendous investment that's taken place at every level of the internet to fix this copyright issue. And this has happened often at the expense of um talking about how these platforms function as part of our democratic technology and i think that that's one of the things that that it's strange that it's seemingly unfixable and yet you know it really talks about some of the limitations of the law and what it what what it incentivizes you can think about how much that safe harbor provision which uh you know youtube was using um really you know led them to much more enforceable about, about copyright, and that, is, you know, that filters every single video uploaded to YouTube right now. Um, I just, on, you know, keeping on that copyright point, I just wanted to kind of close with this question about accountability, because I think one of the things that comes up is this idea of transparency and disclosure, and where's the limit of that, and where do we ultimately start talking about accountability? Because you think in Germany, for better or worse, there's talks about actual fines, uh, there's questions about whether there's too much concentration, I mean, in Canada, you're talking about uh, roughly three quarters of our advertising market is controlled by Google and Facebook. So, I mean, you know, there's, very, so there's a host of questions that we hear about, you know, what can we do about actually accountability mechanisms? What might be in terms of kind of specific outcomes? And I just was wondering if anybody wanted to kind of speak to not just simply about like what, you know, what, what do we need to know, but like what might be some regulatory tools that, that we might be starting to think about as a media problem for these, these companies. I a couple of things I can say there. Um,
3: so in a recent paper that I'm, I'm working on, I basically tried to collect like every transparency project that Facebook is involved in. Um, and I found that only two of them, I think, have any kind of bite to them. So if there's any kind of legislative or regulatory requirement for them to do this, everything else is voluntary thus far. So you just mentioned NetzDG in Germany, the German hate speech law. One thing which I think is less known about NetsDG, which gives big fines potentially for not taking down content, is that it has, I think, the first legally imposed transparency disclosing requirement. So every quarter, they've been issuing uh, transparency reports, which are actually quite interesting. They they were giving uh, information about employees and, and things that we didn't really know before. Um, so on one hand, I'm skeptical, just because of the skeptical kind of literature um, the critical literature around the impact of transparency in the long run. Of course, it's not a panacea, but I think the transparency that we've seen thus far has been so limited that you know it might more transparency might be good.
2: I think we've got a I think we've got a challenge that we haven't even sort of like resolved in this mm-hmm. table because in the last couple of years we certainly have grown more focused on harms and gotten more a more sophisticated understanding of the nature of the harms. Um, and are hearing a call in reaction to those harms, there are still people who feel very strongly that the platforms intervene way too often, right? Uh, And are very worried about kind of free speech limitations. And we've even, in the course of this conversation, said like, I don't want companies making those decisions and I really wish we could understand the entire climate, right, which implies doing something about it, right? And my sympathies are with all of those sensations. So while we are getting more and more sophisticated at recognizing the kind of um, surprising dynamics of what people do on these platforms, especially things that are toxic and harmful. Um, we, that goes with the question of like, how would we imagine platforms doing something about that? And what implications does that have for an array of other practices? To me, the, the question is something like um, it's not should the platforms moderate, because of course they do. They always have. And to choose not to moderate is a kind of moderation. Right? So they're always making choices, and those choices are consequential, and we're getting more and more sophisticated at understanding what's going on. It's should they moderate exclusively, right? Um, and I think what we've done, especially in the US and all of the countries that partner with us and then are obliged to change their laws to fit ours, um, is that we gave platforms an enormous gift. I mean, this goes back to the safe harbor, uh, which protects, was really designed to protect internet service providers and search engines from being held liable for what users do. That offer got extended to platforms as they grew, which looked nothing like the platforms that we have now when they were first imagining this rule. Um, Doesn't have any kind of, even the mechanism that copyright does, which says you're protected, but if you're, you know, you must respond to takedown notices, at least has a mechanism built in. Um, In the history of US media regulation, that kind of gift, that gift that said, this is a new industry, it needs a protection, a protection from liability so that it can grow and form. And that protection is both users can do what they want and you won't be held liable, and you can either turn a blind eye or you can moderate, and in either case, you're also not liable. That was an enormous gift, and that gift came with no obligation. In the history of media regulation, usually gifts like that. like. Um, broadcast licenses or you know uh, regional monopolies for phone companies come with an obligation and that obligation is something about here's a way that the public may be harmed by what is otherwise your business structure right so if you give the telephone company a monopoly it makes sense that they will wire up the cities because there's lots of people and they'll come to the rural areas last because there's not a lot of value and so the rule was you must have universal service and that was a sort of like non-market mechanism and it didn't say you won't have the monopoly. We can still say you can have the liability protection, but it can come with some nature of obligation, and it might be time now, especially now that we're not nurturing lots of small little companies, but we're dealing with like a fully-fledged, matured industry with some very large players, that we can say, if you want to keep enjoying that protection, there are certain kind of like base standards. And I don't mean regulate like this, moderate like this. It means like share best practices, make that data available, have a public ombudsman, you know, um, bare bare minimums, transparency reports, lots of things that we can expect of them to go with that gift that we gave them.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, we're talking about, at least in Canada, is whether we can think about the Broadcasting Standards Council which has been used, which actually, if you have an issue with what you hear on the radio, you can complain to them. And there's questions about whether it, it's effective or not, but I think it actually proves a fairly robust, or at least it begins a template for what could be a governance model for this. And that, yeah. that actually really has to talk about, I think, and this is, I think one of the last points in your book, Charlton, is actually how much more of this needs to be made public, and that making public, I think, is important.
2: And, and to then be able to understand those, we're going to need really sophisticated thinking, like what would a climate notion of a very large-scale, constantly dynamic Mm -hmm. platform-shaped discussion look like, and how do you even make sense of that?
1: One of the things that I just would like to point out, that there are ways in which the companies scale, that they don't allow individual users to scale. So sadly, you can only have 5,000 friends on Facebook. I'm sorry. (laughs) Very popular. Everybody likes you. But at 5,000, it's over. And you get, you have to transition into a page and you're a personality and there are different rules, there are different schemas of engagements. And I think we don't talk a lot about the moment when these things switched from social networks to social media and the kind of impact that that has had on um, the ways in which we communicate, not just with our own friends, but how News has had to really contort itself to distribution by platform. Politicians have had to contort themselves to running digital campaigns. Education, of course, the MOOC was once a reality. Now it is some kind of substrata of for-profit colleges, right? And it's like preys on the the like least um, Able to access even community college, right? But it's there, and it takes your student loan money. And so I think that, like, as social networking technology um, moved into this social media infrastructures for everything, um, that we just kind of missed the mark as internet researchers on marking those very gradual transitions that have so impacted our social institutions and weaken the ways in which we can scale, we can fight back, we can protect certain places. And the last thing I'll say is like there's this big YouTube scandal going on right now around telemedicine and influencers were used to uh, invite people in to do therapy either online or over the phone through this company called BetterHelp. And YouTuber influencers uh, this is lore, I don't know if it's true, but they were getting paid $200 per referral, which is really incentivizing them to talk to specific uh, individuals that were fans of them and talk to them about the therapy services. And we didn't have that kind of intimacy and that kind of relationship with with uh, you know, our radio hosts and, and, and the people that were endorsing products. Uh, and so I'll say like, even as we move Forward, and we think about what's being decontrolled and all the social institutions that we're losing authority and, and faith in. We're also like headed this way with science, headed this way with medicine. And if we don't um, sort of try to pull the emergency brake, as ben, you know, Walter Benjamin would say, then um, we're, gonna, we're it's gonna, it's gonna be a collision course, right, with, with these corporations. And so I, I think we have to go back to thinking through the social network model. Mm-hmm. And then think about what it would mean to regulate social media, mm-hmm. right? And the, still allow people to create and be in contact with their friends and be able to scale that contact, but be res- uh, there has to be some kind of w- responsibility on top of it.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, 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 just to say Leon, you have the last word, and then uh, and then we'll go to questions. But I think one of the, this is one of the challenges that we've had. I think for me, someone who's been particularly involved in network neutrality debate. And while well, in one sense in Canada, that's about common carriage, and that's something I can talk about in another, but it speaks to, I think, Tarleton's question about the gets to the public. But that, that idea that you think of in some ways network neutrality was a way of entrenching certain platform dominance because we weren't able to scale what's the difference between a small and a big company on the internet. And we really have, in some ways, this kind of inability of what do we talk about with these kind of different categories of internet users. And I think there's a lot of reluctance, and that's often a strategy. If you if you do this to Facebook, you'll do this to every single website. And I think that that's also one of the points at which we're trying to, I think, move forward is like, what do what we talk meaningfully about scale? Considering, as Joan points out, they do that already. So. I get the last word.
7: Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
7: I keep thinking about this quote that uh, Tim O'Reilly had at uh, Data by the Dane Society. He said, a bug is uh, what we told the computer to do versus what. Uh, no, no, what we thought we told the computer to do first what we actually told them to do. I think you can think about that the same way with platforms, right? Like, they were intended with, they were created with a purpose and, like, uh, an ideal user, right, and why someone would use it. But what we didn't expect is, uh, what I guess they didn't expect is when people use platforms for uh, things that they didn't intend. Right, and although we can label things like geopolitics, like big P politics, um, personal politics bleeds in. And I think the best example of, these come together is uh the Yelp uh Red campaign when uh a restaurant in Kentucky refused service to Sarah Huckabee uh, Huckerby Sanders. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
7: and people bombed the Yelp page with terrible reviews. that were like, the food's disgusting, they're Nazis, and they put pictures of like pornography and roaches and everything. Use every single feature you would use to review a restaurant uh, to like slander that restaurant right but they actually use the platform exactly how it was made to right to convey uh, your opinion about something but they did it not for the virtues of the service or the food but for their politics it bleeds it I think this is the best example of how uh, but food right uh, I guess it, food you know I always think is just an innocent thing
0: but you know there's all why
7: well, and you know also,
1: this is also
0: something that comes up with professors so it's like rate my professor that's also been used adversarial so if you have a controversial professor there's been, they've been actually been targeted through the rate my professor reviews and so you know it speaks to kind of dark time uh, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. it was an astoundingly
2: naive notion that you would like build a social tool and not imagine that its very presence would then become a mechanism to do social things.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good We missed that one. Yeah. Uh, OK, so yeah, I mean, we have lots of people here, uh, obviously. Uh, so uh, we're going to do some questions here. Uh, did you, did someone
5: here have my hand up? I did have my hand up, but other
0: people can. OK, so There's I'll do work with them. Uh, one, <laughs> two, three, four, and then I'll blank out here. So uh, you can go first.
1: Um, I think- your printing press analogy was like just so beautiful and I think very crystal clear. Um, but I think that
4: it doesn't reveal like the full picture of like these systems are actually multi-directional. It's not just about the printing press as a metaphor, but that it was also a metaphor of like access to libraries and education and that's what motivated these companies to go into places like Myanmar. Um,